and open with me, if you will, to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Now, what we read in this chapter is Jesus' concluding prayer to what's called the Upper Room Discourse. Now, this, this discourse takes place from John chapter 13, and it goes all the way through this chapter in John chapter 17. And what Jesus does in this discourse is this. Well, he institutes the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in John chapter 13. And then he preaches to his disciples in chapters 14 through 16. And then he offers a prayer to the Father on their behalf in John chapter 17. Now, what's significant about this chapter is this is the final prayer that Jesus prays with his disciples before he's arrested and delivered to the cross. And so this prayer is intended to comfort his disciples because it's preparing them for what's ahead. In this prayer, Jesus prays to his father, essentially saying, my time has come to die. Glorify yourself by glorifying me and keep my people in the faith. Sanctify them in the truth. Unify them in love and and may they be glorified according to your will. But in this prayer, Jesus has his eyes beyond just the immediate disciples. He also prays for all of those who would come to him by faith later on, even those who wouldn't be born for another 2,000 years. And so you, Christian, were on Christ's mind when he prayed this prayer. In this prayer, Jesus prays for you. Now, we won't have time to consider the full breadth and scope of this prayer today. But we will focus on one particular aspect of this prayer, and that is the glorification of God through the giving of eternal life to his people. And we'll consider especially what the essence of eternal life is. So we'll answer the question, what does it mean to have eternal life? And so let's read from John chapter 17. We'll read the first three verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Our focus this morning will be on verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is one of the primary ends of the Christian religion. It's one of the main purposes of all of our doctrine. And our attention today will will be upon what the nature of this supernatural gift is. And Jesus tells us it's to know God and to know his son, Jesus Christ. Now, to understand this properly, we need to consider first the two types of knowledge that we see in the Bible. 
The first type of knowledge is merely intellectual. This is the kind of knowledge that uh, we can glean from creation. It's in this sense that Paul writes that what can be known about God is plain even to the unrighteous because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. So there's a sense in which all men come to a knowledge of God by a consideration of the works of creation. All the famous Greek philosophers are examples of this. They learned a great deal about God with the use of logic and reason and and just by looking at the created order of the universe. But you don't have to be a philosopher to learn about God from nature. Everyone who looks at creation comes to some kind of knowledge about God. Like when we look at the night sky and see the beauty of the stars. Or when we see the divine canvas of a breathtaking sunset. We see the hand of God in these things. And we come to a knowledge of God by these things. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. See, creation imparts an intellectual knowledge of God to all men. There's no place, no people that are exempt from this general revelation of God. And so all men have a knowledge of God in this sense. Even the supposed atheists who who want to suppress this truth and unrighteousness, contrary to all their objections to it, they know that God exists, at least in some sense. But it's also possible to obtain a mere intellectual knowledge of God by studying his word. You see, the knowledge that's required to understand God's word is is not reserved for believers only. It's something that can be discerned by all men, just by the simple interpretation of what it says. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. These are commands that can be easily understood by all men. And the same applies to much of our doctrine. There are plenty of unbelieving liberal scholars who understand the doctrine of the Trinity better than many evangelical Christians. But yet they reject the gospel because they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. They have an intellectual knowledge, but they lack the knowledge that's spoken of in our text. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 13, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you have an intellectual understanding of these things, that's great, but that's not enough. True blessedness comes by more than just an intellectual knowledge of God. It's certainly possible. In fact, it's it's all too common for men to have a merely intellectual knowledge of God. These are the kinds of people that that will seek to discover enough about God to satisfy their vain curiosity. But then they go no further. And some of these people even believe themselves to be Christian. 
but they lack the joy of salvation. And over time, obeying God becomes a chore. Because you see, there are few things more miserable than trying to live the Christian life by the power of your own flesh. True happiness, true blessedness, doesn't belong to a mere intellectual knowledge of God. This kind of knowledge does not bring eternal life. However, we need to be cautious of going too far in the other direction. Because you see, while an intellectual knowledge of God is not enough to save you, this kind of knowledge is still necessary to live your Christian life. Christian truth must enter through the door of your mind before it can make your heart its home. And a lack of knowledge of the truths of, of God will destroy any semblance of true religion. Ungodliness grows best in the soil of ignorance. And so ignorance is its not something to be praised, but yet in our day, doctrine is treated as part of the problem. And so ignorance is, is considered a blessing. Doctrine, they say, is, is destructive. It's divisive. It's harmful to the church. What we need, they say, is, is not doctrinal precision, precision <laughs> but missional hearts. Now, see, we ought to be doctrinally sound as well as zealous to see the conversion of souls. We certainly should be diligent in our evangelism, but not at the expense of doctrine. We must have the right faith, the right message, the right knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it's this very knowledge of Christ that will cause our hearts to anguish for conversions. Vadi Bakum said that the modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus that they don't know very well. Let that not be the case with us. Let us pursue the knowledge of God and not consider ignorance to be some kind of means of grace. But as we've said before, a mere intellectual knowledge of God is not enough. We must have a saving knowledge of God, according to our text. And it's this kind of knowledge that is the essence of eternal life. See, a saving knowledge of God goes beyond just the mere use of our senses. It goes beyond the mere intellect. The Bible speaks of this knowledge quite often. It's a knowledge that implies intimacy and communion and fellowship. It's in this sense in which Adam knew his wife Eve, causing her to bear a son. It wasn't an intellectual knowledge. It was a knowledge that, that implied a union between Adam and Eve. And so this is what it means to have eternal life, to know God intimately to commune with him and to know his son, Jesus Christ, in the same way. The greatest concern that we should have in this life, then, is whether or not we have come to know God. 
See, such saving knowledge cannot be found in anywhere other than in Jesus Christ. You see, Christ is the means through which God is made known to us. But more than that, he's the means through which God is made knowable to us. Earlier in John's Gospel, we read that no one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. And so Paul writes, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ. And so if we are to approach God to be saved, if we are to approach God for grace, we can only come through the one door of Jesus Christ. That's why he tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is the way, and so he's the only path to the Father. He's the truth, and so he's the source of all the divine revelation of the Father. And he's the life. So he's the power by which those who are dead in their sin can be raised to eternal life. Apart from Christ, fallen men can only approach God as a judge, as a consuming fire. But through Christ, we can approach God as a father, as one who's merciful and loving towards us. And so the Westminster Confession of Faith uses strong language against those who would say that we can be saved in any way other than Jesus Christ. And this is regrettably a common position among people, even if they don't confess it. And you'll hear people argue, but what about the people who live in places that have never heard of Jesus Christ? Surely God can make an exception for them. You know, as long as they're good people, they live according to the rules of nature. Maybe if, if they're faithful to the religion that they, they have After all, it it could be the same God that they're worshiping. They might just know him by a different name. You know, maybe there's some kind of back door or a secondary way that we just don't know about. But as we saw earlier, any knowledge of God derived from nature is a mere intellectual knowledge. It's not a saving knowledge. It only gives us enough knowledge of God to condemn people so so that we're left without excuse. In addition, such knowledge of God excludes Christ entirely. Even if you could reason yourself up to God, you'd be approaching him apart from the righteousness of his son, and you will be condemned. Our text says not simply that the knowledge of God is necessary, but also the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he's been revealed not in nature or in general revelation, but in special revelation, in the gospel. And so eternal life is open only to those who have come to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith and who come to the Father through him. And so our confession says in the last section of chapter 10 that those who have never truly come unto Christ therefore cannot be saved. 
Much less can men not professing the Christian religion be saved in any other way whatsoever. Be they ever so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess, and to assert and maintain that they may is very pernicious and to be detested. What makes such a position so detestable? It's because it denies the necessity of Christ for salvation. It strikes against the very core of the Christian religion. Jesus says, this is eternal life, to know the only true God and to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So don't be tempted to forsake this heavenly logic for the logic of the world. Now, we must also offer a brief response to those who would argue that this text implies a distinction between the one true God and and the person of Jesus Christ. These people, they say, you have the one true God over here and Jesus Christ over here, and they're separate. And so this, they say, proves that Jesus is not God. However, the Father is called here the, the only true God in order to distinguish him from idols not from the person of the Son. In fact, the Son is given the same honor and glory as the Father in this text. He explains that eternal life can only be found in both him and the Father. Now, eternal life is a gift from God. It's not something that can be found in any mere creature. But this language is used to point out that Jesus Christ must be known as our mediator. Remember, the person of Jesus Christ is truly God. He's eternal. He's uncreated. He's unchanging. He's omniscient. But he's also truly man. Our text says he was sent into the world. He was born in the flesh. He was born in time. He suffered and died on the cross. And it's only because he's both God and man in one person that he could be our mediator. He's the one through whom God and man can meet and be reconciled one with another. And it's necessary to know Christ in this way. We must not only know God, but we must know God in the flesh. And so this text doesn't imply that the Son is not the one true God, not in any way whatsoever. In fact, in a parallel text, in 1 John chapter 5, Jesus is called the one true God. Verse 20 of that chapter says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so God the Father is the one true God. Christ the Son is the one true God. The Trinity is the one true God, and all other supposed gods are idols. And eternal life is to know this true God intimately, to commune with him, for our souls to have have fellowship with him. Now, if such is the case, then how great is the sin to commune with devils, to allow our hearts to seek after sin? Paul warns us, he says, have no fellowship 
with the unfruitful works of darkness. If fellowship with God is eternal life, then what is fellowship with sin? It's eternal death, eternal damnation. And if fellowship with God is eternal happiness, then what is fellowship with sin? It's eternal misery. So flee from your sins. Because not everyone who claims to know God will be saved on the last day. Many people have deceived themselves into thinking that because they've confessed to know God, that they will therefore be saved. But all the while their hearts are in communion with sin. Is your heart truly in communion with God? Or has your confession of Christ come only from your lips and not from your heart? This is what it means to have eternal life. To know God intimately. To commune with him and to know his son, Jesus Christ, in the same way. And this communion with God is sweet to the soul. It's the most glorious of relationships. It's the most intimate of marriages. Believers have the privilege not only of being in covenant with God, but of being in the most intimate communion with him as well. See, when we give ourselves over to Christ by faith, we possess not just his benefits, but we possess Christ himself. And we could say, my, uh, my beloved is mine, and I am his. We are joined with him inseparably by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And so the Christian religion is not primarily negative, meaning it's not primarily about what we've been saved from. It's not avoiding the pains of hell. The Christian religion is primarily positive. It's mostly about what we've been saved to. And we are made to commune with the one true God, and we are joined with him in fellowship. We delight in him, and he delights in us. We give our whole selves over to him, and he gives his whole self over to us. And if we give ourselves to him, and to him alone, and we give ourselves to him completely, then we could be assured that he becomes ours. We are joined together with him by his spirit, in union with him, bone of bone and flesh of flesh. How deep, how intimate, and how loving is that communion? This is what it means to know God. If you're married, consider what it's like to be apart from your spouse for some time. Maybe they're on a business trip or something. And maybe it's been several, several weeks. And after all that time, your heart begins to long for the company of your spouse, doesn't it? Now, would finding a biography about your spouse satisfy that longing of your soul? You might be able to read about your spouse in that biography, but it's not the same as their fellowship. There's no comfort to be found in the mere historical account of his or her life. What you need is their communion, 
the fellowship, their embrace. That's like the difference between a mere intellectual knowledge of God and a true, saving, experiential knowledge of God. You might be able to tell people all the facts about God after you read his book. But unless you experience him in his communion, you don't really know him. And when you know God in this way, you've already tasted eternal life. We have a foretaste of heaven here on earth in our communion with God. See, grace is the seed of glory. Once grace is planted in your heart, it will one day blossom and become the flower of glory. So if you've been given this wonderful gift of Christ, then you've already experienced heaven. Grace in your soul is heaven in your soul. And heaven is sweet to the soul, isn't it? Matthew Henry said it best. He said that those who are brought into union with Christ and live a life of communion with God in Christ know in some measure by experience what eternal life is and will say, if this is heaven, heaven is sweet. And a taste of heaven causes us to crave it even more. And so we'll treasure anything that brings us into closer communion with Christ. We'll have an appetite for his word and for the preaching of his word. And we'll do everything in our power to commune with him more and more. And our emphasis won't be on things like how much the church can entertain us, but it'll be on how much the church feeds us with Christ. And so we'll faithfully attend the preaching and teaching of the word. And we'll dig into his word on our own. Not to have the upper hand in theology debates or or to say the right words in church, but to have communion with God in Christ. And once the soul has been united with Christ and it, it tastes the sweetness of heaven, it will crave an even deeper communion with him. And so we'll seek the Lord in his word. We'll stir up our hearts in love and we'll hide his word in our hearts. And we'll consider all the history of redemption, and we'll consider how it was all done to secure the redemption of Christ's people. But not only that. You see, a redeemed sinner will think upon all of redemptive history, and he'll think, all of this was done for me. Christ was born under the law. He was rejected of men. He was mocked and spit on and crowned with thorns and he was nailed to the cross. And he drank the cup of divine wrath and all of heaven turned his face away from him on the cross. All the earth trembled at his death. And this was not done for some abstract theoretical people, but for me. And so how can I neglect so great a salvation? How can I continue to think so lightly of my sins when I'm united to Christ and I've died to sin and I've been resurrected to a life of righteousness? How can I use my members for instruments of sin? And it's this kind of meditation that helps us to prepare to take the Lord's Supper as we will do next week. We reflect upon Christ And we reflect upon ourselves. And this reflection causes an even deeper communion between us and him. 
And then that reality is signified and sealed by the consumption of broken bread and by a cup of wine. And our communion is confirmed by that sacrament. And our faith is strengthened and and nourished by the grace of God. And what a beautiful communion that is. If you are in union with Christ by faith, you get to experience a taste of heaven even now. But one day, you'll experience it in fullness. That seed of grace in your heart will mature into the flower of glory. Not in this life, but in the life to come. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. You see, we commune with God to the extent to which we know him. And when we know him as perfectly as our glorified minds will allow, then we will know him in fullness. We have a heavenly home. And our aim is to experience our heavenly home even while we're here on earth. As it is, we see through a glass darkly. But that won't always be the case. It's like a sonogram. If you've ever seen a sonogram of a child in the womb, you know that you can discern a lot about the baby by it. I know Tiffany would always try to figure out through the sonogram which one of us our children would look most like. (laughs) But just like we could see our children faintly in that sonogram, even now, we can see Christ dimly in his word. And as we mature in our faith, that sonogram becomes more like a 3D ultrasound. Now, those are kind of new, but in those 3D ultrasounds, you can start to discern more features about their face. You could sometimes even see their hair growing in and, and all that. And likewise, as we grow, we will know Christ more fully and more clearly. But then in glory. It's like seeing that baby face to face, seeing his smile, hearing his laugh, holding his hand. What we have now is beautiful, but what we will have then is incomprehensible to us now. Paul writes, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Our future glory is hidden with Christ in heaven. And so may our hearts be turned there towards our heavenly home, our true residence, and not to things on this earth. Christ prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is to commune with God 
to delight in his love and to rejoice in the blessedness of his son. And such a knowledge of God is tied directly to his glory. Notice in our text how how Christ glorifies both himself and the Father by giving eternal life to his people. And so this is the goal of the Christian religion, to glorify God by knowing him and by making him known to all those who would come to him by faith. What a beautiful promise we have in Habakkuk. The Lord says there, The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So may we we pray for such a day, for all people to know the Lord and for his glory to be throughout all the earth. What a beautiful goal of the Christian life. It's, It's not about avoiding the punishment for sin. It's about knowing and delighting in our Savior. We are saved in order to know God and to know Christ in the most intimate sense of the word and to grow in our knowledge and communion with him, to fellowship with him for all eternity. So may this be the greatest desire of our hearts all the days of our lives, to know God and to know his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to know you, to taste and to experience the sweetness of your salvation. What a privilege it is to know you and to know your son, to know to know you intimately in communion and and in fellowship. Grant this gift, Lord, even, even to the least of us this day. May we come to you by faith and rejoice together in union with you. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.